Hello, this is Rachel Bevan from Oncology News Australia, proud producers of the Oncology Podcast. It is my great pleasure to introduce this episode in our Women in Global Oncology mini-series. Today, Eva Segalov is chatting with Maria Bolon, a medical oncologist and researcher from Mexico City. I hope you enjoy this special episode and share it widely beyond your oncology community. For the latest oncology news and podcast updates, subscribe to the Oncology Newsletter for free on oncologynews.com.au. This is Rachel Babin, and this is the Oncology Podcast. G'day, g'day, g'day. What a great podcast we have for you today. And it's my very great pleasure to welcome my friend, Maria Borlon from Mexico City. Hi, Maria. Hola. Que tal? Nice to join you. So, Maria, let's start by you telling us your understanding of global oncology, because that's really how we met. So, I mean, global oncology is really a new field, which is trying to improve global cancer control and care around the world and adapting the knowledge that we have in high middle and low research settings. So according to the resources of a setting, we need to take care of cancer in an appropriate way. So don't you think the people in low and middle income countries deserve the same cancer treatment as high income countries? Is that what you're saying, Maria? Of course, everybody deserves high quality cancer care. Unfortunately, resources in the world are not enough to give always the same care to patients. So we need to improve our way of as physicians treating cancer with our resources, given the best care we can. So there might be some changes and you might not have the best available medicine, but you can have the best supportive care, the best palliative care, coordinate your research center to give patients the most access to clinical trials or compassionate use of medicines. That's a pretty good answer there. So, Maria, you've chosen a couple of papers from Mexico and we will have them on the website so people can link to the full paper. What have you chosen for us? So, I think it's important to understand that middle and low-income countries might not have the same organization as high-income countries. We may not have the same political stability. We do not have a structured health system. Our communication methods among institutions might not be very good. So some of the papers I chose are talking about that political instability or changes may have an impact on healthcare. You know, the programs that were actually uh, going through a presidential period may change during the next presidential period because they want to do improvement, but there's actually not a guarantee that the programs will follow. Sometimes they want to close a program and open another, and that has many risks because starting a program is very hard. So I think we need to make sure that our countries at our low research setting understand that they need to keep their programs and just improve them over time. Maria, how does it feel to be an oncologist from Mexico when you visit ASCO or ESMO and you see the riches of the first world or the high-income countries? So for me, my first exposure to ASCO was an overwhelming experience. Attending is, 
you know, fascinating in the way you see new drugs, new indications, you know, research from high research setting. Well, all these, you know, infrastructure and resources they have on molecular biology, genetics, immunology, drug design that we really don't have. But it's also a challenge, you know, to get that knowledge to your setting. You cannot copy the structure high income settings have, but you can get many ideas that can be adapted to your setting and actually improve the way cancer care is delivered. So it's very important to understand, like for low and middle research setting specialists, that we cannot get frustrated for not being able to do the same thing. We have great resources in terms of, you know, a lot of clinicians very very accurate in their physical exams, a lot of clinicians being very accurate in providing supportive care. And we need to get that into account to provide our patients the best support we can and try to do changes in our structure in the terms we could adapt or incorporate in the near future more clinical trials and more drugs in a way that's reasonable for our environment. So, Maria, tell us about your environment. What's life like for your average medical oncologist in Mexico? How many are they? How many patients do you see? Give us a a good picture of life for you and your colleagues. So we're very few oncologists, medical oncologists in, uh, you know, our country. We're about 600. And, you know, it's kind of overwhelming because you won't find, you know, an oncologist just focused on academic practice that's very unusual. Usually most of us are fractionated in doing academics in the morning, private practice in the afternoon. So your time gets split. So first of all, you think you're falling apart because you have many things to do. You need to understand that your salary in academic practice will not be enough. So that's why most of us do private practice in the afternoon. In terms of workload when seeing patients, you have a lot of patients per physician. I usually wouldn't be able to live with my clinic alone in academic practice if I wouldn't have fellows that actually take care with me of the patients. Each fellow will be seeing around 10 to 20 patients per clinic day sometimes. So it's kind of overwhelming. You'll really need to make sure they review the cases the day before you need to encourage them to read and to start making decisions themselves because there's no way an attending is always going to be there to make the decision every time. Of course, they consult every time they think the case it's necessary to be commented, but there's some times that we're not going to be unable to be on every case and on every room with the patients as attendings or physicians in charge of a field of cancer. So it's kind of overwhelming for uh, clinical oncology fellows, but I think it kind of encourages them to be better oncologists and better clinicians early in their career. I think it's also important to understand that we're developing and decades ago, we wouldn't think about clinical trials being open, you know, every single week in our country. Nowadays, it's a changing time. We, of course, are seeing improvements in the way we're taking care of our patients and the access we have to medicines. So 600 oncologists remind us of Mexico's population. So Mexico population is around 120 million inhabitants. 
So we have older, you know, pediatric oncologists and surgical oncologists on our society, but there's still a lack of oncologists, meaning that oncology, it's going to be around the third cause of death in our country. It's very important to understand that we're going to need more and more oncologists. So Maria, in your center, it is a cancer center in Mexico City. How many oncologists are there? Do you have MDTs? So I actually work at the National Institute of Science in Mexico City. We have a hematology department. So we have medical oncologists and hematologists that take care of, you know, um, hematologic malignancies. We usually are about, about 12 to 15 attendings. And then when you see our fellows, we have fellows from Mexico, but we also have like fellows from other countries, especially other Latin American countries, Central and South American physicians that don't have an opportunity to train in the medical oncology field in their own countries and travel to have an opportunity to train in this very important area of medicine in our country. So we have a very cultural mix uh, in terms of our fellows, which is good because they take to see what's better from their countries, better in other countries. So that enriches them a lot, the way they see medicine and the way they see cancer care. Is there any particular cancer distribution within your population that's a little bit different from high-income countries? And tell us about the reasons for that. Yeah, so one of the most important things to know about cancer incidence in Mexico is still for men, prostate cancer is the most common cancer, but also the most common cause of cancer death, in contrast to other countries in which usually we see lung cancer. And this comes in lines because, you know, sometimes males will not get the same cancer care, early cancer care we see for women with breast cancer. So usually they get a late diagnosis and they present with advanced disease up front. So this is a very important phenomenon we're trying to fight against. And it's very difficult to set healthcare policies since, you know, in high income countries, they've said, you know, maybe screening doesn't work. So we're not going to be screening every man for prostate cancer and we're not going to be doing PSA, you know, to all our population. And then you come and see that most of our men present with advanced prostate cancer, metastatic disease that's not curable. And usually, you know, drugs for these kind of diseases are very expensive. So it's very important to adapt your policies to the kind of population you're having and the incidence you're having. Maria, have you got a really crazy story for us? A really most memorable patient or circumstance, something you had to deal with that is perhaps very hard for us sitting here in Australia to imagine? Yeah, so for example, I'm a GU cancer specialist, so I lead with testicular cancer patients um, very often. So on our everyday practice, every oncologist knows that nowadays testicular cancer can be curable most of the times, but you need to have chemotherapy available. During the last months, unfortunately, we got this COVID-19 problem. A lot of the, our health resources were kind of 
gone for that purpose. And some of my patients that we were actually seeing at our institutions were diagnosed with advanced testicular cancer. They were needing chemotherapy and we were not able to give them chemotherapy because there was no chemotherapy stock on our center. We don't have a way to send them to other centers easily. It's kind of very difficult to have them go to the National Institute of Cancer, which is next door. There's not an official way to send the patient. And that's kind of available for everybody. So we need to deal with healthcare workers. I need to call my colleagues from the other center to actually send our patient. And then our patients went to the other institution and then they denied, you know, the chemotherapy delivery because they were already assigned to my institution. My institution was designed a COVID center and was not receiving resources to treat cancer. So imagine how difficult it is to see a patient that's actually curable, not being able to receive his chemotherapy on time. On the top of it, since we didn't have enough chemotherapy for our country, you know, the price to pay out of pocket for bleomycin or etopolysate or cisplatin went 10 times the normal price. So even if the patient was willing to pay something out of pocket, they couldn't afford it. So fortunately, yes, you know, COVID times were very hard for us. It let us know that our healthcare system is not very well organized. It let us know that politicians and healthcare workers were not prepared for this. And many patients that actually could have been cured were not able to be cured because of the circumstances. We got some donations from private institutions that helped us take care of some patients. But since the price of the chemotherapy went very high, we were able just to help a few of our patients. So it's very hard, you know, and you're seeing these kind of stories that you couldn't believe they're happening in the world. Testicular cancer, that's a curable neoplasm, couldn't be cured for some of her patients. I was uh, thinking of a happy story, Maria, but that's really very sobering. I think the most, you know, rewarding story I have from this is I always got help from my colleagues in other institutions trying to receive my patients, trying to uh, find a way that our patients could be referred in an easier way so they could actually help us. So one thing I really appreciate from these moments is having my friends and colleagues support, which is very important. I think all of us uh, kind of chat on, you know, some WhatsApp uh, groups in which we kind of send each other, you know, messages about who's having a new clinical trial that could help our patients. So one important story or fascinating story for me is before I was an attending at my institution, most of renal cell carcinomas that were diagnosed at my centers were either referred to another hospital to be on a waiting list for four months or so to be able to get a drug or they were sent to palliative care. After we organized a research center and we had clinical trials for advanced renal cell carcinoma, most of our patients got treatment because they were enrolled. So nowadays our fellows have experience on immunotherapy and targeted therapy because they've been able to see these patients for free, actually, you know, because this is sponsored by, you know, a pharmaceutical industry. So I think this is something very rewarding. I'm not the only one who's doing this. So we have a group in WhatsApp of young oncologists sending, you know, our patients for different clinical trials because we know otherwise they won't get, you know, the standard of care. 
So, Maria, you've mentioned the impact that COVID had on delivering cancer services, but can you tell us a little bit more about COVID-19 in Mexico? Yeah, so COVID-19 in Mexico had many consequences on healthcare. So my institution, for example, was closed. Our outpatient clinic and our inpatient clinics were closed for non-COVID patients. We were only receiving COVID patients. So I did receive a lot of, you know, consultations on my private clinic about patients trying to get healthcare on, you know, governmental institutions and being unable to receive, you know, a first time visit for the following three or four months. We need to organize better. We need to have non-COVID centers that will be able to assist these patients because otherwise you have two problems, you know, COVID patients and non-COVID patients that are also dying because they don't receive the support they need. And just talking about COVID in the community and not specifically for cancer, how frightening was it to be in Mexico in terms of the speed of the pandemic and how it affected just everyone in your street or your neighbourhood? So, I mean, I think it was very scary for everybody to see how our death numbers were going up and how we were going up and up in international rates. And we're not the third country with more deaths related to COVID. I think for the population, it was also very scary because there was no way the government could guarantee they were going to receive their salary. So on top of this, you know, having the risk of getting infected, if you went to lockdown, you were not going to be receive your salary. You were not going to be able to eat. You were not going to be able to pay your basic needs. So I think for a middle-income country as ours in which, you know, we cannot guarantee our population salary or work, it's harder than high-income countries in the where you can go to lockdown. So at the beginning, we were seeing a lot of very, you know, sick patients from COVID arriving to our emergency room with symptoms that were there for one or two weeks. And they got into the emergency room with severe hypoxemia. And we know knew at that point that there was nothing to do already. You know, even if those patients could get, you know, an ICU bed and be intubated, it was too late. So there were many, you know, discussions on social media about people claiming they were not receiving their N95 mask or they were not receiving appropriate equipment to go into the ICU or the emergency room. And they could be increased rate of healthcare workers getting infected and actually some of them being dead because of COVID-19 infection. Still, it was very scary when we needed to go as attendings. Imagine me being an oncologist and some other being surgeons or ophthalmologists or dermatologists going back to the emergency room areas. Maria, have you got any other fascinating stories for us just to give us a flavor of what life as an oncologist is like for you? I would tell you the story of one a very young female who got into our GU oncology clinic with advanced kidney cancer, non-insured, of course, 
with anemia secondary to a perineoplastic syndrome, very symptomatic, unable to be treated on, you know, an institution with uh, current drugs for metastatic RCC. She got enrolled as her first patient on a clinical trial. Uh, she wasn't able to work. She wasn't able to take care of herself. And after starting in our clinical trial, it has been two years since she's still responding she doesn't have anemia anymore. She doesn't have pain anymore. She's back to work. She has got insurance by now. She was her first patient on, you know, an international clinical trial with immunotherapy for first-line RCC. That's a fantastic story. And really your journey with clinical trials and their potential for how they can help middle and low-income countries is very inspiring. I guess the challenge is to maintain access after the trial is finished, and that's a harder problem to solve. Yeah, of course. We always work with our patients since they're on first line in the trial. We always work with them to try to get insurance during that time for the time they've progressed. We have something to offer them. Otherwise, you'll be stuck after first line. So it's not an easy process. You not only need to treat them on first line, you need to tell them about the future. What's going to happen if they don't get insurance? What's going to happen if they don't have other alternative? So it's, you know, not only medicine, but it's also social working and dealing with, you know, middle income countries problems. And tell us about Mexican patients. What are the particular cultural aspects that affect care? So there's many cultural aspects. There's a wide range of Mexican patients, as you can imagine. We have very low educated patients, very high educated patients. So we have a mixture of all of them. In contrast, you might have the private setting where you see people who have a better socioeconomic status. They usually have access to private insurance, or at least they can pay out of pocket. So they're question more you more about what you're doing. You know, they kind of have more questions every time. They want you to explain more and more. So they kind of invade your privacy, kind of invade your, you know, free days, you know, even the weekend. So it's kind of overwhelming sometimes to take care of private practice patients that way. You need to establish limits up front and you need to tell them this is an emergency and you can call me. These are not emergencies. Please don't call me for these. So you need to establish the limits very well with them up front. You know, it's kind of, you know, a social phenomenon we see all over Latin America and we're coping with it because it's very hard to answer WhatsApps every day, you know, and sometimes you fear you're going to do a mistake because you're not actually seeing the patient. It's going to be hard to accept that, you know, they have a terminal diagnosis or that they are on palliative care and we're not doing more therapy. So you need to be very careful the way you explain it. You need to cope with the family and go through, you know, the benefits of stopping oncology treatment and let them know that's a natural process. Even if they don't want to lose their relative, that's part of life and that's part of the natural process. So we always make sure to explain them that that's expected, that when the time arrives, we're going to support them in that way. And they need to be in peace because they've done their best while their relatives were alive. 
and the consequences that may have to the family financial stability and emotional stability. So I think we need to be uh, very careful in analyzing every case, you know, individually. Sometimes palliative care in, you know, these low middle income countries is very important because if you don't have access to drugs and I mean, transportation is something difficult. They don't have a center in their community to have cancer care, and they need to travel very long distances. Then palliative and supportive care get as a very important measure you need to have. So it's very hard to have, you know, very good palliative care people in the private setting. Someone needing palliative care who gets a consult today and their next consult is in two months. How are they going to adjust their pain medicines? How are they going to adjust, you know, if they're having anxiety? How are they going to cope with the problem if they cannot get to see a physician or, you know, a PA or a health specialist to help them? Excellent, Maria. I think that's so fascinating. Maria, tell us about gender equity. You're a young female medical oncologist. For me, I have more and more opportunities every time. So I feel like most of my classmates or most of my co-fellows believe that if you're a woman, you're not going to have a high position just because you're going to be overwhelmed with getting married, overwhelmed with having kids. And on top of that, you're going to be seen as a female, which is usually seen you know as a lower, you know, intellectual level than a man. We don't see females very often. So I think it's very important for new oncologists to understand they can get there. They can get a position. They can be, you know, the head of a department. They have the same abilities. They just need to cope, you know, with their social problems in a way that they will allow them to go up, you know, in this algorithm and get a better position. So I think most, you know, women in medicine will feel they have a hard harder way to go if they're women than if they were men. So that's something we'll live with. But I think you can have two options, like be frustrated because of that fact or get it as a challenge. You know, you may need to work harder, but if you get there, you're going to change other females' life. You know, if you get to be the boss, then you can encourage your fellows to be better tomorrow and help them get the position they deserve. So I think we as female need to get that as a challenge not a frustration, for sure. So Maria, what about the attitude of patients towards female oncologists? You mainly have men. Are there any issues there? Yeah, so I'm a GU-focused oncologist and I have had um, lots of, you know, experiences with these patient being a male, seeing a female physician who's young and then fighting with these, you know, social background they have. So when I first started my career, I was seen as a very young female and they were sent to Dr. Boulogne. So I had many patients come in the room and say, well, where's Dr. Boulogne? And I was like, that's me. No, that can't be possible. You're very young, miss. And that was kind of frustrating at the beginning. Then it became kind of something I got used to it and I coped with it. And I was like, okay, I'm very young, but I have the credentials. So I'm Dr. Boulogne and you're going to be my patient. 
So it was kind of very funny to see those attitudes of patients. Sometimes they wouldn't refer you as, you know, Dr. Brulon. They will say, Miss, how are you? Because they couldn't achieve, you know, on their background that a female was going to be a physician. And now I get, you know, used to it. And after many years, you know, even my patients say, you know, the first time you were going to see me, I was thinking, you know, I have almost my granddaughter taking care of me. And shall I trust her? After the years, I've learned to trust you, even if you're young, even if you're a woman, but it was quite a challenge for me as a patient. So still a lot of social phenomenons going on. Maria, it's been fascinating talking to you. You are really an inspiration. Mexico is very lucky to have you. You're one of the most positive and enthusiastic people And I've been very proud to be your mentor through our relationship with Global Oncology and JCO Global Oncology. Thanks very much for talking to us at the Oncology Journal Club podcast. We wish you all the very best. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the Oncology Podcast. If you enjoyed today's edition and would like to subscribe, head over to our website, oncologynews.com.au and sign up to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.